when we actually compare nutrient intakes between vegans, vegetarians, meat eaters, we actually see that the vegans do as well, or if, you know, a lot of cases even better than the meat eaters do uh, for overall nutrition. That's not to say that there aren't certain nutrients of focus. Yes, vegans should be taking a B12 supplement, but it's a shame that we always think that, you know, you could be eating McDonald's every day and, and nobody really seems to bat an eye about deficiency when really we should maybe be worried about excess there. But when you start ditching the animal products and going more towards the plant-based side, everyone becomes a nutrition expert. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. San Luis Obispo, California, Reno, Nevada, and my hometown of Norfolk, Virginia. We appreciate you all helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 104 of season 4, number 299 overall. And it is also our season finale and the final episode of the year. And with that in mind, we will be continuing to prepare for a healthy you in 2022. And we're doing that by laying out some facts. I mean, look, there are a million and one things that have been said about a vegan diet. There is a lot of misinformation, not enough nutrients, not enough protein. You have to eat meat to survive. Cow's milk is the healthiest milk, etc., etc., at all. Now, I wanted to call today's episode True Lies because, well, I love that movie. But really, it's the inverse of that. So instead, we're going to go with false facts. Now, these are so-called facts that are believed to be 100% true. But in reality, they are 100% false. They have been purported, reported, and supposedly verified. But I got to tell you, Joe's Health Blog and at Diet Donnie on Twitter, they are not the most credible sources. And the funny thing is that a lot of what we read on the internet is the result of one big game of telephone. So Joe and Donnie may have heard that vegans don't get enough protein from someone at work, who themselves heard it from their spouse, who heard it from their neighbor, who heard it from their sixth cousin seven times removed. And yet, the sources were never questioned. And so Joe and Donnie reported the opinion of the sixth cousin, seven times removed, as if it were fact. Is that even a thing? I, I don't know. That part of the family tree could be as made up as their original claim that vegans don't get enough protein. But there are a lot of easier ways to get to the truth. You don't need a massive game of telephone. All you really need to do is make one call, and that is to a doctor who specializes in diet and lifestyle medicine. And we will be making that call today to Dr. Matthew Nagra up in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I had the opportunity to meet him when we were both speaking at the Veg Expo there not too terribly long ago. And he told me that he was a fan of the show. I said, well, Doc, that's funny because I'm a fan of yours, so let's get you on the program. So that's what we're going to do right now with five absolutely false facts about being vegan. 
Thank you so very much for being here, my friend. Thanks for having me on and thanks for the intro. How often do you have conversations with patients or even people that you just meet on the street and they're asking you about a plant-based diet? Is it or is it not healthy? And then you just have to clear up all kinds of confusion. Uh, you're missing one group and that's the you know Instagram space. Uh, that's where I get most of the questions. It's not, it's not always on the street. It's uh, not always in my office, although it does happen there a lot too, but definitely online. I don't even know how many questions per day. Yeah, they, they just seem to be so pervasive. And it's not one of those, I would say, you know, like just kind of easy going debates. It's like people are passionate about their food and they are passionate about their diets. And I, I obviously am too. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. The exam room wouldn't exist. And I'm assuming you're pretty passionate about getting the healthy message of the plant-based diet out there as well. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, all my days off are spent doing that. So um, yeah, really, really passionate about it. What days off, man? If you're doing yeah. that, they, that's that's work, man. You're getting it done. But let's go ahead and dive into those five myths. We've come up with five of the biggest for the purpose of this conversation today, even though I'm sure there are 25, even 50 of them that we could tackle. But let's go ahead and start with that big one. And that is that if you're eating a plant-based diet, a vegan diet, there is no way in the world you're getting all the nutrients that you need. Yeah, that one always gets me because it's, it's so funny. When we look at the research on you know different populations, we can look in Brazil, Switzerland, uh, Finland, across the U.S. and Canada. When we actually compare nutrient intakes between vegans, vegetarians, meat eaters, we actually see that the vegans do as well or if, you know, a lot of cases even better than the meat eaters do uh, for overall nutrition. That's not to say that there aren't certain nutrients of focus. Yes, vegans should be taking a B12 supplement. Yes, here in, in Vancouver anyway, you should be taking a vitamin D supplement. And there may be a couple others to consider. But overall, we actually see that as far as nutrient intake goes, it's pretty good uh, amongst the vegans. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a shame that we always think that, you know, you could be eating McDonald's every day and, and nobody really seems to bat an eye about deficiency when really we should maybe be worried about excess there. Um, but when you start ditching the animal products and going more towards the, the plant-based side, you know, the, the classic meme, everyone becomes a nutrition expert, right? They start asking you all the questions and, um, you know, where are you going to get X, Y, Z? Um, but, uh, overall you're eating a variety of whole plant foods or minimally processed plant foods, and you're probably doing pretty well. Yeah, you know what, and and I think that that's really a good point that you make there because I, what never comes up in these conversations, just as you said, somebody goes to McDonald's, they don't bat an eyelash. But I would think that the prevalence of some sort of nutrient deficiency is rather high, no matter what diet a person is eating. Yeah, and the other thing that comes up a lot is you'll you'll hear a lot of these people say, "Oh, you need to be really focused to eat a vegan diet. You need to be super educated." on you know um where to get all of your different nutrients but again when we look at the research on these different populations we aren't looking at some nutrition experts we're looking at the general population and those people who have decided to ditch the animal products for plant foods uh for whatever reason we don't know it not necessarily health reasons it could have been ethical reasons it could have been environmental reasons and still we see they're doing pretty well and yeah i mean Iron, which is something we're going to talk about more, is the number one nutrient deficiency in the world. Um, it's certainly not a vegan-specific problem. Um, B12, especially in older populations, becomes a problem as well because you absorb less of it as you age. 
Uh, vitamin D, again, living here in, in Vancouver, it's probably a problem for a lot more than just the vegans. So these are there are concerns amongst all populations, and no matter what diet you're eating, you want to ensure that you're getting your nutrition. Uh, it's not just the vegans, which is kind of the point that really annoys me about that question because it always seems to be directed at that specific population. And as you were talking, I was looking up uh, nutrient deficiency prevalence. And according to this study that was published a few years ago, 31% um, of the entire U.S. population is at risk of having at least one uh, vitamin deficiency. And so then you talk about the various diets and no, 31% of the U.S. population is not eating a plant-based diet. Nowhere close to that. Ergo, a lot of people have a lot of room for improvement. And then if you go and you look at the global prevalence, you scroll down here and you see this other study. It says in some areas of the world, you're looking at up to 60 or 70% of the population having some sort of deficiency. So I think that that's really a key um, fact that often gets overlooked in this conversation. So I'm glad that you and I are able to bring that up today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially when we look at global prevalence too, I mean, there are other issues there. There's food security issues. There's, you know, there are these other factors that we have to consider too. It's not just about whether or not you're eating animal products. No question about that. No question about that. Let's go on to another one. We'll go to myth number two here. This is an interesting one that I really didn't even think about until started to do these shows and speaking with experts such as yourself. And that is the belief that if you're eating a plant-based diet, and especially if you take dairy out of your diet, you're more at risk to break your bones. Yeah. Um, this really, really popped off like two years ago now, uh, 2019, when the Epic Oxford study came out, uh, suggesting that uh, vegans were at higher risk of fracture. And, you know, all the Joe Rogans of the world, all, all you know, all the big, big names we're, we're uh, talking about, or the big names in the kind of like anti-vegan or, or vegan combatters uh, really started to run with it. And we have to look at the nuance within the study. There, there are a couple issues. For one, the Epic Oxford population, which is a UK-based uh, population they were looking at, the vegans in that group tended to not always be the most health-focused. There weren't super high uh, rates of like B12 um, supplementation. If we look at uh, data during the winter time anyways, the vegans dipped into deficiency uh, for vitamin D. And when you look at the breakdown of men, you know, premenopausal women, postmenopausal women, it was actually only the postmenopausal women that were at increased risk of fracture compared to the meteors. The men, the vegan men weren't at risk compared to the non-vegan men um, and the premenopausal women also were not. Another really big factor was that the um, vegans tended to weigh a lot less. Now, one of the biggest uh, factors for fracture risk is weight. Um, if you're light, especially underweight, your risk of fracture goes way, way, way up because you're not stressing your bones all the time. Your bones don't have a chance to, to really strengthen. And we had a lot of vegans under about uh, under a BMI of about 20, which is just on the bottom end of what would be considered a, a normal BMI or healthy BMI. Um, now, if we make the cutoff 22.5 for your BMI, so you only look at people who are around the middle of the normal range to the higher end of the normal range and above, vegans did not have a higher risk of fracture. So that tells us that BMI was actually, or the low BMI in the vegans was actually a driving force behind that. Now, that can be a good thing in certain ways, 
but not so good if you're underweight. And we can suspect based on the number of vegans that were below that lower BMI cutoff uh, that we had a fair amount of them that were actually underweight and possibly significantly underweight. Um, now that's, so that's one big factor. Now, of course, calcium is something to discuss, protein intake. And uh, these researchers, when they only looked at individuals with at least I would say a decent um, calcium intake, uh, there was still a risk of fracture. It was less than if we didn't only look at those who were consuming more calcium, uh, but there was still an increase in risk. Um, same with when you consider protein. Yes, higher protein intakes decreased risk a little bit, uh, but there was still residual risk there. And I would suspect, uh, based on everything I've just said, that it was the low BMI that uh, was the main factor there. But we also have a study that came out just uh, earlier this year um, from the Adventist cohort, so Adventist uh, Health Study 2. And this one looked at uh, you know vegans, vegetarians, uh, we'll call them flexitarians, semi-vegetarians is what they uh, named them, and uh, meat eaters. And um, yeah, again, vegans uh, had a higher risk, but it was only, again, the vegan peri-postmenopausal women. Um, and when they supplemented both calcium and vitamin D, there was no increase in risk anymore. So the risk was only there uh, for uh, hip fracture and I believe total fracture uh, for those who were not supplementing calcium or vitamin D, uh, which does suggest to me that, yes, we want to really make sure we're getting our good calcium sources, things like fortified plant milks, uh, tofu, um, certain other foods like tahini, even broccoli can be a decent source and, and so on. Uh, and we definitely want to make sure you're taking your vitamin D if you live in northern latitudes. All right. So a couple of points to unpack there. Uh, yeah. Number one, you're talking about being underweight while eating a plant-based or vegan diet. Uh, it is possible also, even if you're not eating a plant-based diet, for mm -hmm. a person to be underweight, correct? Yeah. And there's actually some speculation I've seen from other professionals that we have to consider the possibility of people adopting plant-based or, or vegan diets, if you want to call it that, um, for with eating disorders, right? Like it's not necessarily that the diet could have caused that, but it, someone could shift towards that plant-based diet as a way to restrict their intake if they do have pre-existing eating disorders as well. And another conversation that I had with someone in the plant-based space, very well-known name, uh, was a, a rather interesting one. And it, it also goes to weight and to BMI and uh, how that factors into fracture risk. But um, instead of talking about bone density and strengthening the bones because of the excess weight, they were like, well, you also have to remember that without the fat around your body, you know, you don't have that padding. They said it's kind of like bubble wrap with a package, right? It kind of protects you if you were to fall. And I laughed at that initially, but then I was like, that's so common sense. There's probably something to it as well. Yeah, no, I, I would not be surprised at all. And, and, you know, for those of us who, who, uh, or for, I guess, any vegan who might be a bit uh, on the lighter side as well, which could be a good thing for risk of, of certain diseases, um, weight bearing exercise, that's the way to do it. You know, lift weights, run, walk if that's um, what you feel comfortable doing something where you're carrying either your own body's weight or added weight uh, can help add that uh, pressure to your bones to, to help strengthen them uh, over time 
All right. Next up is protein. I mean, you're talking about mm -hmm. vegan myths, Doc. You obviously can't go this conversation without talking about protein. And it's not just about where you get your protein, because let's just assume at this point that we're talking to someone who does realize that there is protein found in plants. But then the conversation can kind of shift to the quality of protein and whether it can match up if from animal sources versus plant sources. So when it comes to the quality of protein a person is consuming, how does a plant-based diet compare to the standard Western diet? Well, I'm glad you asked because this is what my presentation at the Planted Expo was all about, <laughs> where I met you. Um, so there are a few factors to um, say the quality of protein. For one, we want to look at the amino acid content. Um, one of the claims uh, towards uh, vegan diets or, or plant-based foods anyway, is that they have a poor amino acid profile. And amino acids, for those of you who are, are not aware, are the building blocks of protein. You can think of them as the little Lego blocks that you stick together and you build a full structure, a protein out of it. Um, well, plant foods tend to have lower amounts of maybe one or two of the nine essential amino acids, meaning the nine amino acids that we need to eat in our diet. And so if you ate just that food and ate nothing else and just barely met your minimum protein requirement, you might actually not have gotten enough protein uh, because you'd be lacking in that one amino acid or maybe two amino acids. Fortunately, we don't do that. We eat multiple foods. We eat a variety. You eat your beans, you eat your grains, you eat uh, your nuts, seeds, veggies, fruits. Um, and so all in all, over the course of a whole day, you shouldn't have to worry about it. It, it shouldn't be a concern at all um, if you're eating a variety of protein and eating enough overall protein. Um, so that would be one. Actually, the, the one food that's complete or food product that's completely missing all of or one of the essential amino acids is collagen or gelatin. Uh, which is an animal product. So I like to throw that one in there. Um, now, with the uh, digestibility being the other concern, so, so some proponents of animal protein will say that plant protein isn't as digestible. You don't uh, absorb, absorb as much um, of it when you eat it. Uh, they will base that on two scales. One is called the PDCAS, Protein Digestibility Corrected Amino Acid Score, but I'll call it PDCAS. And the other one is the Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score, or I'll call it the DS uh, for short. Now the PDCAS basically measures the amount of protein digested by feeding foods, usually to rodents, and then measuring how much protein goes in and how much comes out the other end. Um, and now the difference is supposedly what was absorbed, but there are a few issues with that. For one, we aren't rodents. We have different protein requirements. We utilize them differently. Um, two, they're looking at the entire digestive tract and some of the bacteria near the end of the digestive tract might uh, chew up some of the protein too. So it's a little bit of a kind of inaccurate reading. Um, and three, this is the biggest one. It also docks points if your protein isn't complete or if it is lacking or lower in one or two amino acids, which as I just mentioned, will um, kind of sway the results towards favoring animal protein over plant protein, even though it may not matter in the context of a overall diet. Now the DS aims to correct for some of those issues. For one, they use pigs, which are closer to humans in digestive tract, but still not, uh, not uh, anywhere near or not necessarily uh, uh, the same. Now they also tend to feed raw foods. 
that's a problem. So they feed um, raw legumes, um, raw grains even. And when you cook those foods, you increase their digestibility. So um, they're using products that might actually, again, dock points on the plant side. Again, they look at the limiting amino acid. Um, so they're looking at the amino acid that, uh, or the amino acids, I should say, that might be a little bit lower in that given food um, and docking points for that, same way that they did with the PDCAS, which is, again, irrelevant in the context of a overall diet. Um, and they actually measure digestion specifically from mouth to the end of the small intestine. Um, so they actually insert a tube through the abdomen. It's not very nice. You know, obviously, I wish I didn't or they didn't do that, um, but they uh, remove the food at the end of the small intestine. So that removes some of that bacterial digestion I was talking about. But a lot of issues there. What we need to look at is actual human data. And the limited amount of human data that we have, um, <clears throat> looking at digestion, again, from mouth to end of small intestine, usually through ileostomy bags, uh, we see that there, um, there is maybe a few percent difference at most. It's absolutely tiny, tiny difference uh, between the digestibility of either uh, animal or plant protein sources. But what really matters is, does it lead to similar muscle growth or strength gains? Who cares about the amino acid profile differences or digestibility differences and all of that if the result is the same, right? That's what we should care about. And we do have research on that. We have a lot of research comparing whey protein, pea protein, even some on rice protein to whey protein, which is considered the highest quality um, of uh, a lot of the animal proteins. And we consistently see if you're having the same amount of protein and, uh, and a high quality protein at that, there's very little, or actually there's no uh, measurable difference uh, between the, the different sources. So the plant sources perform just as well as the animal sources. And, uh, you know, some might see that and say, well, you know, those are supplements, they're, they're isolated, they're more digestible. Um, how can we say that that's relevant to overall foods if you're having a, a vegan diet versus an omnivorous diet? Well, a study published early this year, early 2021, actually hopefully puts that to rest. Um, they took 19 vegans and 19 meat eaters. Uh, these are all men. Um, they had them up their protein intake, either from plant sources by, by supplementing a soy protein on top of their diet or um, in the animal group or the omnivore group whey protein, so that they were having 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. That's kind of where you don't see further benefit for strength, uh, strength gains. And after 12 weeks of training, resistance training, no difference, uh, no uh, significant, statistically significant difference between the different groups. So um, that should tell us that in a diet where most of your protein intake is coming from either exclusively plant foods or a mix of plant and animal foods with, yes, a bit of supplementation in there. Um, if there's no difference there, I don't suspect we will see a difference. And I don't suspect we should think that there's a difference. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that you brought up that study because there is a, a large percentage of our audience who is like, they just can't get on board whatsoever with animal testing. And that's something that we work very hard with at the Physicians <laughs> Committee as well to end, end that and find those human relevant methods. And it sounds to me like the quality of data you were talking about, where they pitted vegans and non-vegans head to head there, that data is cool. And I think that if you expand that study, uh, get some more participants, repeat it a few times 
times, I think that, you know, then you've got yourself a, a home run and you wouldn't need to worry about the rodent experiments or the pig experiments, which oftentimes, Doc, you know, those those results don't even translate into yeah. human uh, results. So, yeah, um, that's, that's a I'm sorry. I'm just going to mention that, too. Like that, that's the thing with a lot of the, the animal research is it often doesn't translate anyway. Like, and when we have human data, especially for something like you know, muscle and strength gains, as I just mentioned, then why do we need it? Uh, we shouldn't, um, especially for something like that. Now, let me ask you, um, there is the ex uh, assumption here that we're talking about a whole food plant-based diet. So the upper echelon, the upper tier of a healthy diet there. But what if somebody is eating a lot of these processed vegan foods that you would find in the frozen food section or in the middle of the store, they're prepackaged, you know, basically ready to roll. Um, would there be a risk of protein deficiency if you're eating that type of food? No, um, not at all. If anything, I actually, especially mock meat products, like the plant-based meat alternatives would be excellent sources of protein. Um, they are, are typically made with actually protein isolates. So they'd be really high in protein. Um, and from a health standpoint, sure. Maybe we can say that, that, uh, you know, your, your black bean burger is going to be uh, healthier than a beyond burger. I don't think many people are going to argue with that. Uh, but we do have research comparing beyond burgers to, um, to even organic meat products. Uh, there was a study called the swap meat study that uh, it was a, a randomized crossover trial where they um, had participants have either two or more servings of Beyond Meat products per day or um, two or more servings of organic meat products. So not even your regular meat, which is I think a good uh, part on the uh, uh, researchers there for going for the organic just to really show that there isn't much of a difference. Um, and uh, I can't recall exactly how long the trial was. I think it was eight weeks. Um, we saw that the Beyond uh, group actually lowered their, uh, or dropped a little bit of weight, and then they lowered their LDL cholesterol um, compared to the uh, organic meat group, suggesting a lower risk of cardiovascular disease as well. Um, so the data, although limited, that we do have on these mock meat products, even some of the higher saturated fat ones like a Beyond Meat product, actually suggest benefit if you're swapping from, um, you know, the, the animal products, the meat over to those. It always depends on what you're comparing to, though. That's the most important question in nutrition is compared to what. And my final point on this is, look, if there are vegan bodybuilders who are like three times as big, Doc, as you and I put together all muscles, then that tells you everything that you need to know. Those people do exist and they are enormous and they are super strong and they eat carbs, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on and uh, put the focus for number four here on our vegan myth list on a specific nutrient. And this is an interesting one. Iron. You hear about this sometimes with a plant-based diet. Maybe there's the belief that if you're eating exclusively plants, you're not going to be able to get enough iron because where does iron come from? Well, it comes from meat. It comes from liver. It comes from animal products. But uh, when somebody tells you that, what would your rebuttal be? So if we look at developed countries, we actually don't typically see a difference in um, iron deficiency rates amongst, uh, say, vegans, vegetarians, or meat eaters. Uh, they tend to be really similar, and there's a few reasons for that. So for one, if you eat plant-based iron or non-heme iron with vitamin C, which you know, bell peppers, broccoli, citrus fruits, you can actually really increase the absorption of that iron. Also, if your iron stores are low, 
you boost your absorption of non-heme iron or, or plant iron. Um, if your stores are topped up where they should be, then you decrease absorption. So you really regulate that. So if you're on the low end and you add vitamin C to the mix, you can boost your absorption to you know, roughly around what you get with heme iron from animal products anyway. The nice thing is it prevents you in a lot of cases from getting too high uh, with your iron intake, which can also be, or your iron status, I should say, which can also be a negative and increase your risk of certain diseases. Now, heme iron that you get from animal products, sure, it's very consistently absorbed. It has a pretty narrow range of, of the percentage that's absorbed, but it's also associated with an increased risk of several diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, certain cancers, even cardiovascular disease. Um, so it's not something we want to be getting too much of in our diet, or in a lot of cases, like, like we do, we can have zero and, and just focus on the, the plant sources. Of course, if you are deficient in iron, especially if you're anemic, then yeah, supplementation could be a great strategy for boosting values as well. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, like I said, iron is the number one nutrient deficiency in the world. And I think a lot of people could benefit from that, but uh, it's not something that we need to necessarily worry about unless it is a problem, which uh, you can find out with you know, blood testing, how you're feeling, are you fatigued and, and so on. Uh, but I would not think at all that it is a vegan specific problem. Um, but if you look at data in say developing nations, you will sometimes see that those eating like vegetarian diets, um, might be at higher risk than those eating, um, omnivorous diets, but that largely has to do with overall diet quality, not, uh, not just because you're, um, you know, plant-based, uh, per se. Correct me if I'm wrong, but eating vitamin C with the non-heme iron, that improves absorption, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just mentioned that like, yeah. that's like your know, bell peppers, citrus fruits, broccoli, um, all really good for trying to boost absorption or, you know, some people even take a, a vitamin C supplement to boost that. There you go. That that's important. I just wanted to follow up on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because absolutely. that one just, I mean, it, it gets him. And by the way, that's so easy to do. Like if you have a, like a bunch of greens and you're doing the salad thing, just take, you know, either like a lemon and squeeze that over the top, or you can take an orange and squeeze that over the top and boom, there you go. There's your vitamin C. If you're not a fan of the peppers, it's really easy to do. Um, in your practice, how frequently do you encounter patients who have iron deficiency? That's the funny thing. So I get a lot of people coming in, uh, especially women of menstruating age where it's the highest risk. Um, and they'll tell me they're iron deficient and then I'll look at their labs and they aren't. So I think some, you know, standards, not necessarily by, by uh, the medical community, but some standards for iron levels that you'll see, especially in the online blogosphere, as we call it, um, they're ridiculous. You know, they'll be telling women you need to have a hundred micrograms per liter, um, for your ferritin or your deficient which is just absurd. By that standard, almost 100% of menstruating women are going to be deficient. Um, you, know, you, you need to have realistic standards. You need to look at blood counts, see are they anemic, is their hemoglobin okay? Um, you need to look at the full picture as well as the symptoms. Uh, so I see a lot of people who think they're iron deficient, and a handful of them truly are, but I, I don't think it's as common amongst that group as, as they tend to think. And isn't supplementing with that high of a level of iron, doesn't that present its own risks? I believe that that's been tied to cognitive decline older uh, in, in older people. Well, yeah. So elevated um, ferritin uh, levels, even though that's technically in the normal range, but once you get up to those levels, 100 and above, uh, your risk of certain diseases does go up. Now, I haven't looked so much at the cognitive um, side, but definitely for things like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, and so on, we do see a higher risk there. So um, yeah, it could even be uh, considered dangerous advice to tell people to, to supplement, especially high doses once they're already 
way up there with their values. All right. And last but not least, because it just keeps coming up in every single myth show that we do, and people want exclusive shows on this very topic, we can't do a myth list doc without also talking about soy. You mentioned it when we were talking about protein and you know how it, it does contain a lot there, but soy is thought of as the devil in a lot of circles. It's like one of the least healthy things you can eat in the entire world. You'd be better off eating a triple whopper. But what 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 is the truth about soy? Yeah, so soy gets a bad rap because it contains um, isoflavones. These are compounds. They're also known as phytoestrogens. And I think that's the word that gets people, right? Phytoestrogen, thinking it's estrogen, going to act like estrogen. Um, and these phytoestrogens are about a one, one, one thousandth the strength of our own body's estrogens, but they mimic estrogen in uh, structure in certain ways. So they can bind to some of the same receptors. Now with that, you know, some people think, oh, it's going to promote my breast cancer, it's going to promote breast cancer because it's going to bind to the, the receptors in the breast tissue and, and um, you know, wreak havoc. But that's not really how it works. Um, these as I mentioned, phytoestrogens are very weak compared to our own estrogens, and they also bind to specific receptors. They actually select for specific receptors that can have different impacts in different parts of the body. So in breast tissue, for example, um, these beta receptors, they can actually have anti-estrogenic effects. So it can actually do the opposite of estrogen in the, the breast tissue. In bone tissue, it actually promotes an estrogenic response, um, which is a good thing as well for bone mineral density in uh, postmenopausal women especially. And there is some research on soy consumption and fracture risk, seeing that it, it does reduce fracture risk. Um, so from a, a purely estrogenic standpoint, the kind of physiology of what's happening is just completely misunderstood. Um, now, we also have, you know, some rodent studies, which, again, doesn't translate to humans, uh, showing that the concentrations of phytoestrogens in their blood can ramp up by just absurd amounts. Uh, when they consume these phytoestrogens. But when humans do it, the, the blood levels or tissue levels don't increase very much. Um, so again, very different responses between animals and humans. And most importantly, we have many randomized controlled trials. In fact, we have meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials on soy and soy phytoestrogen consumption uh, and its effect on either estrogen or testosterone levels in both men and women. And we don't see that it alters values. So that should be the end of the story as far as the estrogen response goes or the feminizing um, effects in men uh, that is commonly claimed. And um, yeah. let me jump in because to that end, one of the favorite points that was ever brought up on this show was by Dr. Neil Barnard when we we were talking about soy. And I asked him about the feminization of men if they eat soy. He's like, man, if you go to the beach, and you talk to a gentleman who is perhaps a little bit overweight and has developed breast tissue, he's like, I guarantee you that he will have eaten, say, a triple whopper that day, but he has never had an ounce of soy in his entire life. So like when you put it in those terms, it makes a whole lot of sense. And you don't need a whole heck of a lot of really scientific terms to, to hammer this point home. Yeah. And actually, the, the one that I always jump to, um, you know, because... Sure, if we're to go on stereotypes, soy is seen as, as feminizing, and then like beer is seen as the manly drink, right? A lot of the time. <laughs> well, beer has hops, and that has actually more potent phytoestrogen, uh, or yeah, phytoestrogens than uh, soy. So if you're really concerned, you should be steering clear of beer. Um, 
And, uh, but to kind of wrap up the, the soy talk, what we have to look at is what, um, you know, what actually happens to disease risk, you know, similar with protein, we have to look at what happens to actual muscle or strength gains with soy. We have to look at what actually happens to your disease risk. What happens to your breast cancer risk, prostate cancer risk, cardiovascular disease risk, and so on. Um, and there was an umbrella review published about two years ago now, going on two years now, uh, which was, it's basically a compilation of all the meta analyses on the topic. So it's like a compilation of all the compilations of all of the data on soy, um, at least up until that time. Uh, and so they included 114 meta analyses and looked at, you know, dozens of different health outcomes. And, you know, they saw reduced risk of breast cancer, prostate cancer, endometrial cancer, uh, stomach cancer, um, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, the soy isoflavones help with menopausal symptoms. And, um, you know, just on and on and on, they found benefit after benefit after benefit. Um, now, the, to be fair, not all of the research on all of those topics is super high quality. But what we can say is that there wasn't really risk there. There wasn't a concern around increasing risk. It was just either clear benefit or kind of neutral risk across the board. Um, the one risk that they actually saw was uh, miso soup and large amounts of miso soup, to be clear, um, daily was associated with a higher risk of stomach cancer risk, but that's not necessarily because um, of the soy, it's because of the high sodium content. So miso tends to be really high in sodium and high sodium intake can increase stomach cancer risk. Very interesting. Very interesting. Did not know that. But uh, I think that I'm going to isolate that uh, clip where you were talking about beer is more likely to give you breasts <laughs> than soy. I'm just going to I'm going to put that up on, on my Twitter account with a little heartbreak emoji for all my my male followers. I think that that is hysterical. I, I didn't know that about hops, man. That's what I love about this show, Doc, is like every single time I do an episode, I learn something new. And it's the same thing for the viewers, man. So Thank you so much for bringing the knowledge. No problem. Happy to do it. Dr. Nagra is a great follow on social media at dr.matthewnagra. Good across the board for Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and at drmatthewnagra.com. Links to all of those accounts and the website can be found in the episode notes. So funny story about the good doctor, actually about his father. Now I met his dad in Vancouver as well. And this guy is quite the character. I mean, he's the kind of guy who wants the spotlight on him at all times. So here he is and he comes up to me. He's like, Chuck, you know, I'm faster than my son. Now, mind you, this guy has a good 25 or 30 years on Dr. Nagra. And he has a little snow on the roof, if you know what I mean, as well. So I'm looking at him kind of cockeyed and he sees this and then he's like, no, it's true. I really am. I'm an athlete. I think he said he was some big time soccer player or something like that. And that is where he gets his speed. And I mean, he will not leave this alone. He is just needling his poor kid, the doctor, about his legs of lightning. And so he proceeds to tell me that they are going to have a big race sometime in the new year if, and this is a big if, if he is healthy enough because he's been nursing a little bit of an injury. But he says if he's healthy, he will smoke his son 
in this race. Now, I'm laughing to myself at this point because he's just given himself a big old out. But he was deadly serious about this. He keeps on going. So I am really hoping that the race can come to fruition because this guy was talking up his speed like he can win the Indy 500 with his two feet while everyone else is circling the track on four wheels. I mean, it's gotta happen, right? Of course it does. I mean, maybe we can even turn it into a an event, like a fundraiser, a plant-based pay-per-view. That'd be a good time. <laughs> Stay tuned. But jokes aside, I did think that today's show was pretty good. And we are closing out the year by clearing up those false facts, those untruths about a plant-based diet. And you know, a lot of times people are hesitant to try it because they're a little bit scared of what it is that they heard. But from what Dr. Nagra shared on the show and what we've been hearing time and again on the exam room is that there is nothing to be afraid of. Really, boils down to come on in. The water is fine. Now we will be back in the new year with a fresh sound to kick off season five. And we have a huge start to 2022. Dr. Neil Barnard will be with us New Year's Day to share six ways that a vegan diet can improve your health. And that is going to be one that you're going to want to share with your friends and your family who may be veg curious. And then on January 4th, Dr. Dean Ornish will be with us. And I gotta tell you, I have never met anyone who enjoys their work more than Dr. Ornish does. His interview is going to be so full of facts, true facts, and of hope and inspiration and the reality that you can undo a lot of the damage that has been done to your body. You may think that it's too late. You may think that you are too far gone. But Dr. Ornish will show us that as long as you are still alive, there is a good chance that you can undo that damage and go on to lead a healthy life. So all of that is coming up very soon. And before we sign off for the year, close out the season, there are so many people who I want to take a second to thank for making this year possible. Dr. Neil Barnard, of course, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, Dr. Kim Williams, Dr. Michael Greger, Lee Crosby, the Fiber Queen, Dr. Hannah Kaliova, Moby, the musician, badass vegan John Lewis from the documentary They're Trying to Kill Us, his co-director, and also from What the Health, Keegan Kuhn, Dr. Vanita Rahman, and all of the amazing people who have so generously shared their transformative stories with us this year, proving that there is a healthier path forward. And I also want to say thank you to Allison Mahoney from the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund and Dr. Brooke Broussard and all of my other guests who have made the show so much fun to do this year. And also thanks to my crew and my colleagues here at the Physicians Committee and everyone who has downloaded the podcast this year. Thank you all so much for making 2021 our biggest and healthiest year ever. So now we got to top this in 2022. That is the stated goal. But for today, for this year, for this season, that is going to wrap things up. 
for everyone at the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.